Dissonance Media and the Other Stories presents Step into the abyss of After the Gloaming, a gothic fiction podcast that delves into the depths of human emotion. Unyielding love, revenge, internal struggles, and restless souls await you in nine haunting episodes where dread, fear, and rare glimpses of eerie happiness linger. Dare to listen on your favourite podcatcher? After the gloaming beckons, search now, but beware, innocence will be left behind. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. These aren't the stories your mother told you. No, these are the other stories. Let's talk Kickstarter. We are currently running a Kickstarter campaign for our post-apocalyptic luchador action comic book, El Marvo. It tells the story of a luchador wrestler who wakes up in a wasteland of a future to fight mutants, super soldiers and an evil dictator known as Socrates. If pulp action fun sounds like your kind of thing, you can check out and back the campaign today using the link in the show notes for this episode or by going to kickstarter.com and searching for El Marvo, spelled E-L and then M-A-R-V-O, El Marvo. We also wanted to tell you about another Kickstarter campaign running at the minute called Incarnis, a compact storytelling RPG that lets everyone play God and Games Master as you create a world and fill it with myth. It's a delightful tabletop role-playing game about a pantheon of gods who are all about interfering with each of us lives and with the mortals down below. The link for Incarnis is also in the show notes, or you can go to kickstarter.com and search for Incarnis, spelled I-N-C-A-R-N-I-S. Today's episode is Case Study of a Murder God, written by Richard Reynolds and narrated by Persephone Rose. What does it take to become a god? Extra normal physical or mental abilities? A true oneness with nature? An understanding of existence in its entirety. Amara Um had none of those things, but he was always a very smart kid, if remarkably unfortunate. Born in Cambodia in 1970 to educated parents of Vietnamese descent, Amara's first loss came in 1975 with the rise of Pol Pot's communist regime, the Khmer Rouge, which brought about a legacy of death the eradication of three million souls, and all in just four years of rule. 
While it's true that about half of these deaths stemmed from matters of poverty, the rest were victims of outright extermination, primarily of the foreign and bourgeois, the bourgeois in this case encapsulating almost anyone of learning. Being a teacher who wasn't shy in expressing his criticism of the regime, Amara's father was an obvious and early choice for execution. So it was only the five-year-old Amara himself who was surprised when soldiers stormed his family's modest house. They trampled his coloring pencils and drawing as they made a beeline for his father, who barely had time to put down the pencil before he was being dragged from his armchair. Bourgeois he might have been, but Amara's father was a big man and had fight in him, so the soldiers didn't have an easy time getting him out of the house. Both Amara and his mother were held back as the ruckus was taken outside and ceased with the crack of a gunshot. And here, the bright young child knew for a certainty that his beloved papa had been killed like a dog in the street. A second, hugely traumatic blow came about a year later. After a forced move to the countryside, being put to work in the paddy fields and constantly on the edge of starvation, the boy at one time came to find himself being held at gunpoint and forced to look on as his mother was pinned down by soldiers and raped more than once before being executed. Her crime for such grievous punishment being foolish enough to be caught reading a book. Here, a seed of hate and rage was planted in Amara Um that would grow into something quite extraordinary. With the fall of the Khmer Rouge in 79, Amara was finally able to attend school and, sharp as he was, excelled in practically every subject, especially the sciences. Understandably, he was an insular child, not unlikable, but rarely did he go out of his way to converse with others, instead preferring to concentrate on his studies in dead silence, developing an uncanny tunnel vision focus on whatever problem needed solving. He was, in short, something of a prodigy. As time passed, Amara grew into a physically imposing yet gentle man, his father's stock through and through. The young prodigy showed no signs of slowing down, gaining scholarships and doctorates from many prestigious colleges and universities. Later hailed as a world authority in particle, quantum, and astrophysics, Amara was no less renowned for his myriad inventions, both physical and digital, which amassed him a massive personal fortune by his mid-twenties. The science community revered this young man with magisterial awe most considering him to be the embodiment of the best parts of Einstein, Edison, and Hawking, though his shunning of the limelight afforded him more anonymity than his peers. All of these achievements, however, came secondary to an ambition that Amara had developed for himself and worked on as a side project through the course of his academic and professional life, making steady progress right up until April 16, 1998, when his personal project became all-consuming. On this date, it was reported that the ousted Cambodian dictator Pol Pot had died, supposedly of a heart attack. 
but as he was awaiting trial from an international tribunal, it was suspected, and Amara felt for a certainty, that he'd taken his own life. He'd found his own way out without ever having faced the justice of the people. The news sent Amara into a rage the likes of which he'd never experienced, trashing his lab beyond repair before quitting his position, quitting his responsibilities and turning his back on whatever personal relationships he still maintained. Henceforth, he'd aim that tunnel vision of his, along with his vast fortune, at his personal project. Moving his materials, equipment, computers, and study notes to an isolated facility, Amara worked with an almost insane single-minded vigor as he built or acquired yet more unfathomable devices, developed theories and experiments that left his contemporaries in the dust, and developed a quantum computing system unlike anything on the planet. Until finally, these thousands of facets became a single, faculty-sized machine with a sole purpose. Amara decided to test his machine without pomp or ceremony. So, with an unkempt beard and clothes that looked to have been slept in, he turned it on. Spent time inputting data into a number of terminals before mounting a portable console on his forearm and punching in an initialization sequence. At the center of the facility, a small singularity cracked into existence then grew and warped into a rift from which emanated a faint, cloudy light. Amara stood before the iridescent spectacle for just a moment, then, without fear, became the first human to step through a window in time and space. He emerged in what he knew to be a Parisian street in 1950. The rift window closed behind him, but he hadn't noticed as he'd already zeroed in on an Asian man just down the way. Young and idealistic, but recognizable, Amara identified this young man as Salath Sar, a Cambodian student in France on an engineering scholarship, and who was at this moment returning home from a communist gathering. Stopping the youth in his tracks, Amara cut an intimidating figure before the short, podgy student. With his face a mask of rage, he exchanged no words. He simply grasped Sar by the neck and squeezed, squeezed until long after the youth had stopped thrashing, until long after he had died a silent death. Amara had never killed anyone before and was surprised at the ease in which he dispatched the monster that was crumpled at his feet. But the surprise turned to a kind of ecstasy. And why not? He'd done a great thing. Given time, this dead boy would have developed the blackest of souls and eventually come to be known by a different name, Paul Pot, and he'd bring death and misery to millions. But not now. Now he was fucking dead. Amara didn't know how long he'd stood over the body, but he did notice that his heart rate hadn't slowed down at all within that time, and now that he was coming to his senses, realized that he was starting to feel entirely peculiar. His limbs were growing numb, his thoughts diffused, and he could swear that the smoky illumination singular to the rift window was now emanating from his body. 
Quickly, he punched the initializing code into his console to return to his own time. But nothing happened. Nor did it the next three times he tried. It felt like he was turning into nothingness. And it was now that his equipment had decided to malfunction? In a mad panic, he entered an alternative destination code before reinitializing. To his immense relief, a window in space-time opened and he stepped through, where he found himself on the same street only 12 hours earlier and instantaneously feeling normal again. A quick diagnostic showed that his kit was operating perfectly, so Amara opened a window to his own time and returned home. A few Google searches later, and Amara was incensed to discover that Paul Pot had still died on the evening of April 15, 1998. His lifelong quest for murderous vengeance had achieved nothing. History remained the same. Something inside Amara broke with this realization. The next night, he went back to do the job properly. A week earlier, and this time with a huge knife. Not wanting to risk leaving the youth alive, he stabbed him dozens of times, cut his throat down to the spine, and spent some minutes slicing open his navel and pulling out innards. All without a word, but with something of a glint in his eye. To his horror, Amara felt the same post-kill symptoms as the previous night. His thoughts became unfocused, his limbs became numb, his heart pounded and he exuded a cloudy glow. Worse still, his console suffered the same system failure, which this time was quickly resolved with the same course of action, a brief jump back in time so he could proceed forward. Infuriatingly, the sum result of this evening's carnage was the same too. Paul Pot lived to a ripe old age. History hadn't changed one iota. Over the next ten successive days, Amara murdered Paul Pot ten different ways in ten different times. He was beaten to death as a young politician, shot as a teen, curb-stomped as an apprentice, hanged as a revolutionary, poisoned as a child, and even burned to death as a baby, along with whoever else was in the house at that time. With each wordless kill, the symptoms and system errors remained the same as were the resolutions and results. But by now, Amara had formulated a theory, a theory that some rigorous calculation seemed to be bearing out as a near certainty. And with this revelation, the world's foremost scientific mind laughed and laughed like an utter maniac. Never before had he felt so important, yet so redundant. He never spoke again. A nightly ritual of time travel and quiet murder ensued, with each death of the communist leader bringing a gradual but deep addiction to more than just the kill. Increasingly, he reveled in the obscure bodily sensations that followed the murder and the inner light that came with it. For surely, this was a manifestation of what he now considered to be ultimate creation. Some months later, While reading an article reporting on military forces in Zimbabwe slaughtering 200 diamond miners to secure the rich land, Amara decided to broaden his repertoire. That night, he massacred a young teacher called Robert Mugabe with a straight razor. 
It was a bloody affair and rather invigorating, so things escalated and new targets were chosen. After a botched push at Munich Beer Hall, a young Adolf Hitler was found chopped into six pieces in his cell before he ever got to dictate Mein Kampf. During the intervention of a kidnapping designed to raise funds for Lenin's Bolshevik faction, one of the kidnappers, Joseph Vissarionovich Stalin, found himself being attacked. When the police found his body, every joint was bent at the wrong angle, with numerous bones punching through the skin and the boulder that had delivered the killing blow still embedded in the face. Day after day, the victim list grew. Dictators, corrupt militia leaders, cartel bosses, cult heads, individuals who had the blood of hundreds, thousands, millions on their hands were killed, more than once. And with each act of murder, so Amara calculated, a divergent timeline was ripped away from his own, an alternative universe of peoples and possibilities that his actions had created, realities that some outside force precluded him from experiencing, living in, and so rendering him impatiently ineffectual at changing the fate of his own. Amara Um continues still, some might say with an insane glee, night after night, silent, while you and I sleep. He is killing, butchering, creating whole universes, doing a God's good work. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Other Stories. Case Study of a Murder God was written by Richard Reynolds, narrated by Persephone Rose, edited by Carl Hughes, and music by Mayu and Tom Robson. And sound effects were provided by freesound.org. The illustration for the cover art was provided by Luke Spooner of Carry On House. Richard Reynolds is the owner and operator of Ground Zero Comics, a small shop in Mansfield, England. It's my hometown. But he writes, draws, and produces his own comics and strips whenever he gets the chance. You can read these comics for free on the shop's website, groundzerocomics.co.uk, and clicking on the free comics sidebar. If you enjoyed today's episode of Diva Stories, you can help support the show over at patreon.com forward slash hawkandgleaver. You can join our book club and chat about the podcast over at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash hawkandgleaver. Diva Stories is a production of the story studio Hawk and Cleaver and is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means don't change it, don't sell it, but by all means, share the hell out of it. Until next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.